Good morning, everyone. I've been in the mountains. Just come back from the mountains, the particular mountains we were in with the Alps. We have friends there who, it's good to have friends, friends there who have a chalet. We have friends in France that have a chalet as well. Any advances on that? <laughs> and we can see towering among the other peaks, Mount, Mount White, which is of course Mont Blanc, the highest mountain in Europe. Its majesty and its brilliance was enhanced by the snow that was on the top of it, still on the summit, although that, that was fading fast. We would breakfast on the terrace, watching the sun's finger rays creep over the tops of the other peaks and settle in the Rhone Valley, and Lake Limon, or Lake Geneva, as we call it. And we had dinner in the evenings, the same place, watching the same rays disappear in a red sunset, illuminating the snow existing there into a bright red colour. I'm just trying to <laughs> make you feel terrible. <laughs> mountains, mountains can be magnificent, but we need to be aware of the dangers they present to those of us who don't treat them with respect. Some years ago, we were in the town of Chamonix, which is um, at the foot of Mont Blanc, if you don't know the area at all, and it's the place where the great tunnel goes through to Italy. The tunnel was closed when we were there because they'd had a fire in there, um, a petrol tanker or something had uh, had an accident, and the fire that was the result of it was so hot it melted the concrete in the tunnel. Can you imagine what it must have been like? But whilst we were there, in all seriousness, we were advised of an incident that had taken place that day in, in, on the mountain. And uh, it was a father and a daughter who were both experienced climbers, uh, English, and they were climbing and they encountered shale. Now shale is loose rock and it's very difficult to cross and the father slipped and was left dangling over a precipice held only by a rope attached to his daughter. The daughter was in imminent danger of being dragged over as well. There was no one else to help them. And the father, realising this position, told his daughter to cut the rope, and, uh, which she did, knowing that he was facing certain death, he at least was saving his daughter's life. It was a few days later that we discovered that this man was a Christian brother, and... Uh, we knew him vaguely. He'd moved to France with his family to run a church. Yeah, so it, it really came home to us, the seriousness of the mountains. But the Bible talks a lot about mountains. They're very important in God's dealings with man. So I thought that we'd look at a few just to see what God was talking about. Genesis chapter 6, please. Verse 1. And we're going to talk about Noah and the ark. Now, Genesis 6 and verse 1 says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they cho chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man and he was grieved in his heart. Something transacted there, something happened. It's very difficult to explain exactly what this is about, but it's something that God found so abhorrent that he said, I'm going to start again. I'm going to start all over again. And so he chose a man, Noah, and he said to Noah, build a boat. And God gave the exact dimensions, how to build it, what animals were to go into it, everything about it. And he was, to, he was going to start again with Noah. Now, we were talking on Wednesday uh, about discernment of spirits and things, and we were talking about where these things come from. This has a bearing on that sort of thing. If you missed it on Wednesday, I'm sorry about that, but uh, try and be there on next Wednesday. You'll find it's good. But God's going to start again with a new thing with, uh, with Noah and the ark. He wanted something fresh. Now, in chapter 7, verse 20, I'll read you a verse. It says... The waters prevailed more and more upon the earth, so all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. So the ark was launched and out it floated. And for 150 days it didn't stop raining. After that the flood subsided. In chapter 8, verse 4, in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Ararat is in Turkey, and uh, it's in a very politically sensitive area, and so no one can actually go there. The Turks won't let anyone go there. But um, from space, you can see a shape of what looks like the ark by the dimensions, and there are people who have been there that say that you can actually see the remains of things. I can't guarantee that, I don't know. But the point about Ararat is this, it's the mountain place of a new start. God started something new, and he does that every so often in our lives. That's when we're born again. This is a picture of the new birth. It's a picture of us, when we come to Jesus, and he says, it's got to be a new start. You remember the man who came to Jesus, Nicodemus, in chapter 3 of John 4, he came, um, and he said, what, you know, sort of, I can tell that you're the master, you understand all these things. And Jesus said, my answer to you is this, you must be born again. It wasn't the answer the man was looking for, but you must be born again. And we must be made new. God has to do something that makes us new. If he doesn't do that, we're struggling in vain. It's just religion to us. But what comes is life when God comes and does something in us. And we have a desire not to please ourselves, but to please God and do his will. We may not know how to do it. We may make all kinds of mistakes. We do all those things. But there's been a change of management in us. And God chose a mountain to settle this man, Ararat. 
And I think it's the Lord's hand that we can't get to the, the ark, actually, because if we get to it, you know what we do, we venerate it. Someone would get it and set it up in some place and people would come and worship it. And God's not saying that, he's saying this is all about a new start. But while we're doing this, we might as well look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, because Peter says something very interesting. Here we go, I'll read it again. Uh, those that like spiritual conspiracy theories you could read the verses before that to try and explain it but verse 20 talking about people who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark can you imagine there's this man hammering away what are you doing? building an ark it's the middle of the desert. What are you building an ark for? Because God told me to. Oh, really? I see. So God speaks to you, does he? Yes. Ah, oh, I see. Have I ever had that said to you? Anyone ever questioned anything? Oh, so you, you think you're here from God? And Noah patiently banging in the nails, building this thing. And then the rains start. That changes everything. But uh, during the construction of the ark, this was happening, in which a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, all angels and authorities obeying him. Baptism is all about God or us testifying that God has done a new work in our hearts. And it just so happens we have a baptism coming off soon. Yeah. If you've never been baptised and you want to be baptised, come and talk to us about it. Yeah. We'll explain it more fully. But Peter says something interesting here. He says that <laughs> excuse me, baptism now saves you. Now we know that it's believing on Jesus that saves us, but it's part of the package. Okay? So the first thing is it's the mountain of a place of a new start. Believe and be baptised. Genesis chapter 31 we're going to look at now. Genesis 31. I've ministered around this area for a little bit. Peter was great, spoke the other day on this whole area. Jacob um, finding a wife and uh, all that's involved in that. But um, this is a mountain in 30, 31 verse 54. says this, <coughs> Laban said to Jacob, Laban's his father-in-law, Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, they made a, a pillar of stones, which I've set between me and you. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. You will not pass by this heap and the pillar for me for harm. They were at loggerheads. It was all relating to, well, family affairs. Have you ever known families to not, not get along? Is that a possibility? But they don't, we don't, don't get along with families. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. But here you have a situation where Jacob and his father-in-law were at loggerheads. But here... They've reconciled things. So this is the Mount of Reconciliation. They set up this pillar 
And they said, this will be a mark for you and me to remind ourselves that we will not do harm to one another. We're going to be reconciled. In this case, uh, Laban said, you better treat my daughter well or else. Okay, I don't know if Martin did that. I'm not sure. Bit of strong arm stuff. But you know what reconciliation is? It's the bringing together of two things. And generally, one has to become like the other. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 5? Verse 10 says this. For if we were enemies, and we were enemies of God, if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself. Now, God didn't have to change. He doesn't have to change. We have to do the changing. But how do we do it? We don't do it at all unless Jesus comes into our lives and brings about a reconciliation with God. We're reconciled to God. We were sinners bound for hell. That's what it says. Sinners bound for hell. But Jesus reconciled us to the Father by his own blood. The Father looked and saw you couldn't do anything about yourself. So he came, gave his spirit. Jesus died on the cross, dealt with the sin question, brought us together. Once we were enemies of God, now we're friends by grace. Friends by grace. You know, it's <coughs> lovely to bask in grace. You know, you get basking sharks, they lay out in the sun in the water, but to bask. Sometimes it's good to just wallow in the grace of God. Say, Lord, you love me and you care for me. Don't know why, no reason. I can think of a million reasons why you shouldn't, but you do. Bask in the love of God. That's a good thing. Accept it and live in it. Don't live in condemnation. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Live in that which God has provided. A life whereby we can be reconciled to him. Do you need to be reconciled to someone? These two had to get themselves together, Jacob and Laban. There might be someone you need to get reconciled to. You know, Jesus said something. He said, if you're going to go to the, the talk about the temple, if you're going to go to the temple and you've got an offering you want to offer up on the altar... If you're not reconciled to someone, first of all, go back and get reconciled. Then bring your offering. Not before. Do it that way. Be reconciled to your brother. Is there someone that you need to be reconciled to? Well, God dealt with Jacob and Laban on a mountain and said, deal with it. And God wants to deal with it in your life too. So I'd recommend that you did that. Exodus chapter 3. We're still in the first two books of the Bible. How long will this man go on? <laughs> but there's lots of mountains. 
Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. There's another father-in-law in there, who was the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses saw this bush burning, but why wasn't it burning? Flames were coming off it, but it wasn't withering up as it normally does. Horeb, the mountain of God. This has become a mountain of calling. A mountain of calling. And Moses was called by God to set the people free in Egypt. Go back, Moses. You know, we know you ran away because you killed an Egyptian and they were after you. But go back and confront Pharaoh because you can get in. Any other person wouldn't be able to get in to see Pharaoh. But you can confront Pharaoh. He was like a brother with you. And tell him, let my people go. And Moses said... If you don't mind, Lord, I'd quite rather not do that. I'm sure he was polite about it. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. Have you got a call on your life? I want to tell you something. That if you're a Christian, you have a call on your life. You have it. You don't need to ask God for it. You have a call on your life. Now facing Pharaoh was going to be hard. Maybe it's a hard thing that God's called you to do. Maybe not. God doesn't always call us to do hard things. He calls us to do good, good things. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But sometimes things get hard. Is there an, a Pharaoh really in your life? Well you know what God did for Moses. He provided him with someone called Aaron. And everything that Moses said he couldn't do, Aaron could do. But the call was upon Moses. Let me quote to you again from Philippians chapter 3. Where's Philippians gone? Someone's rearranged it again last night. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained it, this is Paul saying, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. This is a verse that got hold of me a long time ago and I always come back to it because I want to pray that I will lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of for Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus laid hold of me that I may lay hold of what he wants for me. That's the calling. That's what he wants to do. And the answer is how do I do it? You press on. You press on one step after another. We were talking Sam and I on the car coming over this morning. Sometimes you get to a place where you think, where? I'm just exhausted. I'd like to lay down here and die. Like a man manual used to be in Faulty towers, you know. I die here, Mr. Fawlty. <laughs> I just want to stop. But do you know how you get to the place you get to? You put the next step forward and the next step forward and the next step forward. And you go and you go and you get there. Press on. 
Because God has laid hold of you for a purpose. Ask the Lord what it is. Exodus chapter 19. So we've had a mountain that's a place of a new start and a mountain of reconciliation and a mountain of calling. And now we're looking at Exodus 19. Verse 4. Well, let's start at verse 1. On the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. It's Sinai. This is probably the same mountain as Horeb. It's probably just a difference in language here. But it's the mountain of God again. Sinai, it's the mountain of the law, the Ten Commandments. The straight line that shows us how crooked we are. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. The straight line that shows us just how crooked we are. And it was God's covenant with Israel time. He placed order in their lives. It became a place of terror for them. If you read through here, you'll find the Lord visits Sinai and there's thunder and lightning and clouds and rumblings and all kinds of things. They were terrified. Do you know what would terrify me most in that? Not the thunder and the lightning, because they're natural phenomena and God, they, they accompany God when he moves but it's the sound of a trumpet. So I think, who's playing that? Who's there? There's the sound of a trumpet. It makes it personal to me. I can look at the, like we looked in the mountains when we sat and had our breakfast and lunch and things like that. Don't want to make you feel bad about it. But as we sat there and gazed into the Rhone Valley down below us and the, <laughs> the Lake Limon and the boats and the... Um, the personal side, when there's a personal thing, that's the thing. And this was personal for them. It was a place of terror. The writer to Hebrews says this, our God is a consuming fire. And we can take that in two ways. He can be a consuming fire that burns us up. If we go too near him, we get burnt. Or it can be an all-consuming fire in us and within us to make us burn for Jesus. That can happen. Our God is a consuming fire. For Israel it was a place of terror because they didn't want to do what he said. But the Ten Commandments for us become the Ten Promises. That's what they're there for. So for God to show that, he wanted to show them something. Go to Psalm 133. We've moved down the book a bit further by a giant leap. 133, a very well-known psalm. Because this talks of the mountain of Hermon, which is a mountain of unity. Let's just read it through. That takes a second. Behold, how good and how pleased, uh, pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down to the edge of his robes. 
It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord commanded the blessings. Life forever. God loves unity, I want to tell you that. If you want a blessing from God, covet unity. Covet unity. Not uniformity. That means we all do the same thing. Doesn't mean that. But covet unity. There are some denominations that chuck you out if you wear the wrong clothes, or that used to be like that, not so much nowadays. But there used to be that sort of thing. That's uniformity. We don't want you all to dress like me. Uh, you've got your own taste. I've got my own bad taste. You've got your good taste. We want to have an inner unity that says we want to go on with a purpose for you, Lord. And you know, unity sometimes means compromise. It means that I have to say to someone, well, I like to do it this way, but I'll do it your way. I'll do it your way, so we can be unified in something like that. It means humility. Willing to say to someone that you deem them sometimes better than yourself. Mostly, the, the message that goes out these days is, look after yourself, make yourself the most important thing in life. But God doesn't say that. He says, give yourself away and bless others. So Mount Hermon is a mountain of un unity. We've got to get through quite a number of them. Only another 26 to go. <laughs> Place of a new start. A mountain of reconciliation. A mountain of calling. A mountain of the law. A mountain of unity. Let's move on a bit further to 2 Chronicles. Chapter 3. If you're a Bible student, you'll know that Chronicles and Kings seem to say the same thing. But in fact they don't, because Kings is more from a historical point of view, Chronicles is more from a spiritual point of view. So that's the difference between the two. But 2 Chronicles, chapter 3... Then Solomon, verse, verse 1, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You know, that David wanted to build a temple for God. Because he said, how can, how can we let God dwell in a tent, in the tabernacle? God said, I don't mind, I'm not there anyway. But, you know. <laughs> but he, they desperately wanted to build a temple. But God said to David, you can't build it. There's too much blood on your hands. So Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where David, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Moriah is a mountain of worship, the Mount of Worship. And it's the place where they built the temple, the temple, and it's still the place where the temple is built. What's left of it, the old temple, David's temple. But you know, God wants to build on our Moriah. We're to be a temple of praise. We're to be a temple of praise, each playing our own part. You know what we do when we sing together and we worship together? We send a song on high to Jesus. 
That's what we do. We send a soul on high to Jesus. It's not a temple made with hands. It's a temple made by the Spirit of God. This is probably the place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and God stopped it. This is probably the place of Golgotha, of Calvary, Moriah, all those things there. And they're all to do with God building a temple of praise. Are you a temple of praise? What comes out of you? Some people will say, I don't like this, this, this new sort of worship. I prefer the old sort of worship with the hymns. Did you know that when the first hymns were written by people like Isaac Watts, they were, they were condemned by the church because we shouldn't sing hymns, we should only sing psalms. So it just goes round and round and round, doesn't it? All these things. But we sing unto the Lord with all our heart and we join together. And you may say, I'm tone deaf, although I believe hardly anyone's tone deaf. But you may say, oh, I can't keep a tune or any of these things. But I want to tell you that God is pleased with your singing. He's delighted with your worship. Because we're saying, Lord, you built a foundation on Jerusalem and that temple there is this mere shadow of the real temple which is us, you and I. Now, you'll be very pleased to hear that there are many other mountains that I could look at but I won't. There's the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus goes up the mountain, takes a few of the disciples and is transfigured in front of them. The only one who makes a comment is Peter who always blurts out the wrong thing at the wrong time. Shall we build three tabernacles here? Shall we build the, you know, for you and for Moses and Elijah? Because that's who appeared. There's the Mount of Transfiguration. That word is the word that God wants to do with us, you know, transfigure us. We could have the Mount of Olives, which is across the valley. I've seen it. I've stood on the Mount of Olives and seen the valley between us and Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives where Jesus found rest and recuperation in the garden but was also condemned in that place. We could talk about the mountain that the Samaritans talk about in John 4 when they say, look, you, you Jews say that over there is the place where the temple should be built. We say it should be over here. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God wants those who worship him to worship in spirit and in truth. And we can all do that. It's not over there. And then there's, of course, Paul who always had fantastic insight in things. In Galatians 4, I'll read this to you. Galatians chapter 4, he says this. It says, oh, tell me you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai 
bearing the children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labour. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. Now if you didn't understand that, let me give you a bit of advice on reading the Bible. If you don't understand it, stop and read it very, very slowly until it, you grasp what it's all about. Because Paul does say some harsh, well not harsh things, hard things. Just take a bit of time here. There's no rush to get through things. But he says there are, there's an allegory here. There's a mountain that's the mountain of the law and there's the mountain that's the mountain of Moriah, which is freedom and the temple that comes by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. One last one. Isaiah 51. The book of Isaiah is a wonderful book. And some people say, hold on a minute, in some parts of it is bringing condemnation and things down. But don't, don't forget he's a prophet, so he's bringing what God says. But then he goes on into wonderful things that are going to happen in the future. And I want to look at a couple of those because it's the Mount Zion that we're talking about. And people, some people have said, well, surely he couldn't have prophesied all those things over such a period of time. There must be more than one Isaiah. That's only if you don't believe in prophecy. But Isaiah 51, and verse 11, So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, the Mount of Zion. And everlasting joy will be on their heads and they will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You know the chorus? Yeah. Yes, we won't sing it. Well, I won't sing it to you at the moment. That's wonderful. That's the future. That's what God's doing. The ransom of the Lord will return. Can you imagine the Jews who have struggled through all kinds of things to hear this? The ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. An everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I'd, I should be glad to see the end of sorrow and sighing. And God's going to do it. Verse 59. Where is verse 59? <laughs> 59, chapter 59, sorry. Chapter 59, verse 20. I get confused. It was all that sunshine and thing that we had to... <laughs> and a redeemer will come to Zion. Praise the Lord. Who's the redeemer? And to those who turn from the transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. God's making some promises here. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Well, we, we can't read it. We have to read in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I remember that. Who spoke that? Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Hooray! 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. There's plenty of brokenhearted people around. To proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, oil, instead of oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isn't that wonderful? That's fantastic. That's God's promise. Jesus is returning. And when he returns, you know what he's going to do? He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to reward his people. He's going to gather up his saints. Why? Because he's the Lord. Build that into your lives. Build that into your lives so that we're not forever sort of feeling sad and plodding away. That we have the joy that one day Jesus is coming back. Amen. And he's going to sort all these things out. We're sons and daughters of the king. We have to act like it. We're in God's family. Now, no mountain should be too hard for us with Christ. If you're suffering from difficulties at the moment, lay your cares at the feet of Jesus. Sometimes God calls you to go up the mountain, you know. Just occasionally you have that experience where God has somehow lifted you up, out of yourself, as it were, into a place where you, you just know. I used to say that we had prayer meetings sometimes where I just felt, if I opened my eyes, I could touch Jesus. I would touch him. Lay your cares at Jesus' feet. Go up the mountain with him when he calls you. Know he's the Lord of the valleys too. You know, there's a chorus that, that um, came to mind whilst I was thinking about this. Do you remember, they that trust in the Lord will be as Mount Zion, which shall not be removed, but abideth forever. Do you remember, do you know that chorus? It's a very simple one. It's written in, in uh, authorised version. But it comes from Psalm 125. They that trust in the Lord will be as Mount Zion, which shall not be removed, but abides forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. So the Lord is round about his people from henceforth, even forever. You know, I didn't look it up in the New American Version, which I have, which I'm using. Let me just read it to you in that as well. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. That's a promise to us, that God surrounds us. He dealt with these people from the mountains, on the mountains that are important. There's something important. I mean, we don't get have many mountains in Enfield, do we? But there's something, and all, leaving aside you know, what I've said, when there's something majestic about a mountain. And the idea that God came down on the mountain and dealt with people in various ways just struck me that he loves us and he wants us to remember it. Let's just pray, shall we?
Father, we thank you for your grace to us and we thank you that you've appeared in your Son to redeem us and save us from ourselves and from sin and from the world, Lord. We want to pray that we'll have our own mountain place, experience with you, that we'll hear from you when you speak your word to us, that we'll live by it. Lord, we pray. You know that there are some folk here who may be going through difficulties. I want to pray for them. We've just read, Lord, that you're coming back and you're going to deal with things. But you deal with things now as well. So, Lord, we come and pray that you'll meet people at the point of their need, whether it be the need for a, a renewed faith, a need for a difficult situation, a reconciliation that has to take place, or whether it's just to uh, rejoice and enjoy you, Lord. Enjoy your presence, enjoy your love and your grace. Lord, all of those things, we pray that you'll just meet people today. So we thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, and we say that we, we want to do your will. So Lord, you get the glory from all that's happening today. In Jesus' name, amen.